This film is a second part in a three-part series for iBiology on creating effective scientific research presentations. Now, in the first part, I introduce the assertion evidence approach. And the assertion evidence approach has three main principles. Number one, build your talk on messages, not on topics. Number two, support those messages with visual evidence, not bullet lists. And then number three is when explaining that visual evidence, fashion sentences on the spot. Whereas you might have just one sentence written on the slide, you will say six, seven, eight, or nine sentences in your talk. This second film does two things. First is, this film presents evidence showing that the assertion evidence approach is more effective. After all, this approach requires quite a bit more work. You have to think deeply about what those message headlines are. You have to create that visual evidence. And then you have to practice enough that you can fashion sentences on the spot. The second part of the talk is to walk through a research presentation and show you what I consider some of my greatest hits. Slides that students have created for various research talks. So, why the assertion evidence approach? Why should we use it? At Penn State, we've done some tests in which we've found that the assertion evidence approach is more effective than a typical presentation slide, such as what you see on the screen. So we created a presentation. This one happens to be on magnetic resonance imaging. And we first created it as a typical, traditional talk that follows PowerPoint's defaults. In fact, we looked at a lot of presentations that were on magnetic resonance imaging, and we patterned it after that. Then we created a set of slides for the exact same words that would be spoken that then followed the assertion evidence approach. So we've got 50 to 60 participants in a room. They see slides that follow the traditional approach. Then we've got 50 to 60 students in another room. They see slides that follow the assertion evidence approach. And after the presentation, both sets of participants, they essentially tried to explain how does magnetic resonance imaging work. And then we had scores who scored each of those attempts. But the scores, or the raters, they didn't know from what group that they came. But what the raters found is they found that the traditional approach, they scored on average about 42% in terms of how much they understood. Whereas the people who viewed the assertion evidence approach, they found 15, they scored at 59%. And the statistical difference between those two at these levels, 50 to 60 participants, is about less than 0.01. And so what we were left to conclude is the assertion evidence slides 
led to better comprehension and recall of information. And that increase in comprehension and recall is statistically significant. One thing that we also found is that the misconceptions that participants had in the traditional approach with traditional PowerPoint slides is about 10 times higher than for the assertion evidence group, 10 times. And what we think is happening there is that the participants, they're reading a bullet or something while the speaker is talking about something else. Those are two reasons for you to think about using these slides to present your research, to increase comprehension and recall, and to reduce number of misconceptions that people have about your work. So that's a reason for doing the assertion evidence approach. How do you, how do you apply it in a research presentation? And so what I'd like to do is walk through some common scenes, sometimes talking about what's typically done, and then show you what's done in the assertion evidence approach. Okay, so here we go. First scene is typically a title slide. And at so many research conferences or at symposiums and seminars, you'll see people have a slide such as the following. Hello, my name is Stuart Apple. I'm working with Carrie Cho and Dale Gray. And we are from the Environmental Science Department at such and such a university. And what we are going to present today is atmospheric mercury depletion events in polar regions during Arctic spring. And then that slide is gone. And in those few nanoseconds between that slide and the next slide, think about how you're feeling as an audience member. Are you, are you confident that you're going to learn a lot in this talk? Do you feel as if the train has left the station and yet you're not really clear on what the talk is about or what the title means? I think that's what many people have or the state that they're in in a research talk. We can do better than that. And now, you kind of look at this slide and you wonder, ah, I see a lot of slides like that. Maybe they've got different decoration, but why? Why do so many slides have this title on the top and then just the name and the affiliation beneath and maybe just some decoration? And you know why. I mean, the reason is, is that people are just following PowerPoint's defaults. PowerPoint tells them to do that. And so they'll put their title and then they'll put their affiliation. And what we're saying is, you can do better than that. You can do better than that. So what can we do? So I'd, I'd like to look at actually this research was done by a young researcher at the University of Oslo, chemistry student by the name of Katrina Asmo. And she was going to give her first research presentation. And she was a little nervous about that. Moreover, the presentation was going to occur in Portland, Oregon. And so the people are going to be speaking in English, not her native Norwegian. But her English is good. Still, that's just one more thing for her to consider. But before this talk, she went to her advisor and she asked her advisor, how many people will be in the audience? And her advisor said, well, there'll be about 50. She said, whoa, 
And then she said, how many of them know what an atmospheric mercury depletion event is? And her advisor said, mm, I'd say five. You're one. I'm another one. Our collaborator, Greta, she's a third. And so that kind of gave her this idea that, whoa, you know, for, for her to orient that audience, she's going to have to spend some time on that initial scene. And so here's what she came up with. Hello, my name is Katrina Asmo, and I'm working with Tarun Berg at the Norwegian Institute of Air Research. And I'm also working with Professor Greta Wibito from the Department of Chemistry at the University of Oslo. And what we're trying to determine is where atmospheric mercury goes when it depletes or falls out of the atmosphere. Now, one thing you may not realize is that in this atmosphere, in this room right here, there's a certain amount of mercury. It's not much. It's about one and a half nanograms per liter. And here in this room, it remains in the atmosphere. Even when we breathe it in, we breathe it out, it still stays in that gaseous state. But for some reason, and scientists aren't exactly sure, in the polar regions of the world, such as this beautiful Null Alisund region that you see here of Norway, there are these events where that level of mercury will drop to zero. And the question comes, where does that mercury go? So these events have got this fancy name, atmospheric mercury depletion events. But where does that mercury go? Now, while you may not have realized that mercury is in the atmosphere, I think everyone in the room knows that mercury is toxic. And at high enough levels, it can cause paralysis and even death for mammals. And so, for the polar bears in the region, for the Arctic foxes, for the stray Norwegians who wander through there, how, where is that mercury? What, and, 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 and how does, how does it get to that particular spot? That is a, you know, a, a research question. And so what we did is, you may not be able to see, but in this one corner here is a cabin. And we stayed in that cabin for two months. And what we did is we made simultaneous measurements of the amount of mercury that's in the atmosphere with the amount of mercury that's in the surface snow to test our hypothesis that is, in fact, where that mercury goes. Wow. I remember seeing this talk at, seeing the beginning of this talk at the University of Oslo in 2004. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not an environmental scientist, but I am lucky. I am lucky to be here because I'm going to learn something in this talk. I have already learned something in this talk. And that's something that I would suggest to you in that first scene, give the audience something. You know, at the beginning of a scientific presentation, there's certain things that you want to accomplish before you get to the middle. One thing is, is you want to show the importance of the research. You want to present background that the audience needs. You also want to present background about yourself to build credibility. And you want to give your research question. Katrina did all of those, all of those on that title slide. Wow, that's effective. So, we've talked about one scene here, 
another scene that often occurs also happens at the beginning before you get to the middle, and it's something people call an outline slide. I like to call kind of a mapping slide. Sadly, many people's slide looks as the following. You've got this detailed list of every single thing they're going to do, things they've already done, actually, in, in the talk by the time they give it, and then things that you already know are going to come. And then they'll will dutifully read through that list. You know, they'll get to, you know, all, almost all the way through, and then they'll realize they misspell a word like acknowledgments, and they'll apologize for it, and then they will finish, and then they will move on. And when they move on, then the audience is to themselves thinking, whoa, he gave me all these things, or she gave me all these things, and I've forgotten them already. You can do better than that. One thing is, remember, people feel comfortable with lists of twos, threes, and fours. So a list here of 11 is not very good. Another thing is, is you don't need to give them some things. Introduction, they know the talk has an introduction. Background, you've already given the background before you do this mapping. Conclusions, acknowledgments, questions, they know that's happening. It's the stuff in the middle. And you don't have to give the sub-levels. I mean, that's not what's so important. It's the main things that you need to give. So let's look at what Katrina Asmo did. I thought she did an excellent job. So. In her talk, she divided it into three parts. One is this theory for mercury cycling. And then she talked, mentioned that she, she was going to you know, talk about that. And then she had another part where she had that measurements from that station, actually on those two types of mercury measurements, in the atmosphere and then in the surface snow. And then her third part of the talk was environmental implications. And she showed this particular picture. And the polar bear is not there in a gratuitous fashion. Actually, a lot of the data on the effects of these mercury depletion events occurs through studying polar bear carcasses. And so that is what she went over. But whoa, what a great mapping scene. And I have seen people sometimes take those images and put those as icons in the corners of all the slides that were from that particular section. That's just another thing here that you could do that doesn't clutter a slide or take up too much space or too much time for the audience's attention. Yeah, but that's, that's the kind of mapping that you want to do. Let's try, let's think about literature review. So literature review, oh my gosh, this is often one of the most boring parts. People walk through all the all the major work that's been done, you'll get a bullet list slide, and they'll talk about everything that they've done. And I'd like you to rethink that. You know, what are you doing in the literature review? You're trying to show that there's a gap in the work, and that, and that your research question, your research hypothesis, your research fills that gap. And so you're trying to show that gap exists. So here's one that Jacob Snyder did on his. And so what he did is, is he, he wanted to make it clear that there are a number of people, not a lot of people, but a number of people who have tried to use additive manufacturing to create these heat transfer devices for these gas turbine engines. And so he showed a couple of images right at the beginning, one from the work of Kirsch and Tolley, another one from the work of Collins. Then it talked a little bit about what they had done. Then he brought in the work of Furster and the work of somebody else. Then he brought in the work of Siemens that they and talked about what they had done. But then he made it clear that there was a gap between what they've done and what still could be done. Wow, 
that's something that people can follow. Really, really nice. And it's thinking about what details are, in, are essential and then what details are secondary. So we've looked at a literature review. Let's talk a little bit about methods. So with methods, I'll show you one that's more from an experimental talk. And so here, rather than having, again, bullet list with all these details, what Nick Cardwell did in this one is started with an image of his experiment. So he's got this recirculating wind tunnel. And then he shows this one particular part of that wind tunnel where they split the flow. And so the flow there splits. You see some of it goes in the blue part and some of it goes in that, that white part. And then in that, in that center part, or that white part, what happens is, is they heat some of that flow. So you've got, now you've got two flows, the secondary flow in the, flu, in the blue part and then the primary flow, but the primary flow is heated. And then they bring that secondary flow back in to try to cool the surfaces after, uh, after, after the heated flow has occurred. And so they're simulating what goes on in a jet engine where they try to cool the parts downstream of the combustor. But really nice. Now, now Nick Cardwell, he knows a lot of the numbers on flow rates and temperatures, and so he was just able to say those. What you could do if you don't have the confidence you could remember those, you could animate them into that white space, but then I would animate them out when they're not needed. Don't let those clutter the slide. But remember, the audience will have your paper. They can go back and refer to what things are. You definitely want to have those details and you want to know them and be able to respond to questions, but you don't need to put everything on the slide as so many people do. Let's look at a second method slide. And on this one, the speaker didn't have images such as the last one had. So let's see how he handled it. So th this particular work was done by Jimmy Weber. And in a sense, what he's trying to do in this part of the methods section is just talk about how he is going to characterize this pollution of 53 streams in the Northeast. And so he introduces these six criteria that he will use to characterize that pollution. And then the second thing that he does is he says, as a reference, he's going to compare the, the pollution of those streams versus the pollution or those same criteria of 12 reference streams. And then he gives a teaser on a couple of results from his work. And I thought that was interesting that he did so. And what he did is, is he showed that the sulfate levels were beyond that reference point on average for the 53 streams. Not to a place where it's dangerous for the plants or wildlife, but certainly beyond the reference. And then he also showed that the chloride levels, those were in fact at the impaired level. I love this scene. I love how he tells this part of his methods as a story. And I love the imagination. Somebody else would have just had a bulleted list and we would have slept through it. But here, he has essentially 
told us a story that we can remember. And that is so important. It's not just that people understand our work, we want them to remember our work. So here, this part of the talk is where you have to, you, you, you're making some of your best arguments. And I just want to show uh, an, an, an example here that comes from some work that's being done in Norway by this Siri, Siri Larson. And so what Siri is doing is, is she's looking at satellite images and, and kind of looking at them in interesting ways with different filters to extract some valuable information. And so these images happen to come from parts of Norway where there might be avalanches. And that's important because if you have an avalanche, you know, it, it, it or if, if, a, if a place is susceptible to one avalanche, then more could occur. And, and you want to keep people away from that particular area. But the problem is, is when you look at the satellite images, sometimes it's hard to distinguish an avalanche from a sparse forest. And so what she has done is she's applied these filters that kind of helps her make that distinguishing. And so one of the filters is this aspect direction, and she would talk about how she applied that and what she would find. Another one then is of the vertical direction, how she applied that and what they have found. But I like, again, how she tells that scene, tells it as a story. So that, that's an example of results that, that has images. Another kind of result would be a graph. And so here's, here's a graph that Steve Weaver put together in one of his talks. And so in this particular graph, what he is doing is, is he's, he's trying to examine the roughness in this heat transfer channel. And so one way to determine that is by this particular graph where you graph friction factor F on the y-axis versus Reynolds number on the x-axis. And so first thing that, that Weaver did is he has that straight line. And so, so that would be a perfectly smooth pipe. That would be the theoretical explanation. So from Blasius in 1894. And then here, then the dots, then those are his experiments showing that within experimental error, he matches the curve of Blasius. But then he's going to roughen up these surfaces. And so he roughened them up in different ways. And so different colors, red is not as rough as blue, which is not as rough as, as green. So what's the effect of roughening the surface? What effect does it have on the friction factor? And then he animates in what that effect is. And then he shows that it's actually, it's, it increases that friction factor in all those cases. A couple of things here that I liked. One is, I like that he told things as a story. Another thing I liked is that here he was given his most important result. And he didn't start with the assertion at the beginning because he knew there would be some people who would be skeptical about that result. And he knew there would be others that if he gave that assertion at the beginning, it would be too much for them. They would be, they, they would be overwhelmed. So he started with a question that they understood. And then when he was ready, then he brought in his assertion. And so in a way, I think of this kind of scene as evidence assertion. Evidence comes first, 
And then when the audience is ready, then you bring the assertion. And in real persuasive types of situations, that's a good thing to do. So let's move on to our last scene. And our last scene is the scene that you show with the end. And interestingly, the most common scene that I see people show as their last slide is something that looks like that. Oh my gosh. Let's think about this. Let's just think about this scene for just a second. What are we trying to do here? What we're trying to do here is, is we have presented our work to the world and now we want the world's response. And so people are seeing our research here for the first time. And and so they, maybe they're spending a minute and a half or two minutes on a graph, but now they're trying to formulate questions. How does this slide help them formulate questions about research that they've never seen before? And the fact is, it doesn't. This is a terrible scene. You can do so much better. Don't do that, please. I mean, think about it. Think about it from the audience's perspective. Your best scene to end with is a scene that shows your conclusion, shows really what your main takeaways are. And that's what Danielle Lesso did in this particular scene. So she had three main points that she had, had made in her talk to show that Miscanthus could be a promising fuel crop for the northeastern part of the United States. And the first one is that Miscanthus is able to have a cold tolerance down to six degrees Celsius, which is important in the Northeast. Another thing is, is that the root depth goes down to two meters, which is important because a lot of the Northeast, as she pointed out in her talk, is on hilly surfaces. And so the plant could be washed away if it doesn't have sufficient root depth. And then the third part, she showed this energy ratio, which the National Academy of Sciences had found, that for every BTU of energy that you put into planting, fertilizing, harvesting, and transporting miscanthus, you get six BTUs out of energy, a ratio of six to one. And at this point, she gave her closure to her talk. And then, when she was ready, then she asked for questions. Now the audience has something in which they can ask. They, they've got words up here to help them formulate questions. So, what have we done today? We've talked about why the assertion evidence approach, why it is worth at least an experiment on your part for you to try the gains that we have in audience comprehension. And then we walk through various scenes to give you ideas on how you might design your title slide, a mapping slide, a slide on your literature review, talk about your methods, your results, and then finally your conclusion. So this particular talk has focused on how we might design slides for a research talk. The third part of the series talks about how you would deliver those slides, and in particular, how you would deliver those slides with confidence.